You're listening to the Fertility Docs Uncensored Podcast, featuring insight on all things fertility from some of the top-rated doctors around America. Whether you're struggling to conceive or just planning for your future family, we're here to guide you every step of the way. Hello, everybody. This is Dr. Susan Hudson with another episode of Fertility Docs Uncensored. I am here with my lovely co-host, Dr. Carrie Bedient from Fertility Center of Las Vegas. Hello. And Dr. Abby Eblen from Nashville Fertility Center. Hi, everybody. We have a very special guest today. We have Carol Silverberg, who is the founder of, can you, I, want to, I don't want to mess up the name of the foundation. Fertility Foundation of Texas. Very good. And we're going to talk a little bit about what exactly the foundation is and a little bit kind of in general about grants and those types of opportunities for um, patients who are looking for some financial help along their, their journey. But I understand, Carol, you've had, you've had an afternoon investigating something a little unusual. Like when you told us what your topic of your Google search was, all, all of our ears pricked up because we're like, yes, we must more. I can say I've never Google searched that before. So what was your Google search of the afternoon? I'm looking for chainsaw oil um, for my new <laughs> chainsaw. <laughs> I didn't even know a chainsaw needed oil. Was that a birthday present from your husband? Right. Or? <laughs> <laughs> no, Valentine's gift to myself. Oh, wow. I've always wanted a chainsaw. I do the power tools around here and that's just the... <laughs> One thing missing from the collection. Should we be worried that this was a Valentine's Day gift to yourself? <laughs> <laughs> she loves herself enough to give herself a, pain, a chainsaw. <laughs> it goes with the garden. So what do you do in the garden with the chainsaw? Do you like climb up and trim the trees or? Well, that's what I'm going to tackle now. We had, With our freeze in um, the end of January that we had in Texas, we lost a lot of bushes and trees. Aww. And it seemed it's a good shortcut to get rid of some things that needed to get trimmed up. Yeah. What other power tools do you use? Are there any other big <laughs> tools that you use or is that the only one? Um, I have a circular saw. <laughs> I've got a few. They come in handy as long as you uh, remember to wear your goggles and don't cut your fingers off. Those are very important rules. <laughs> Good rules to live by. Don't cut your fingers off. That's right. What other accessories does one need to have with a chainsaw? Because I feel like that is on a much higher level. Like I've got all, you know, the circular saws, the jigsaws, the, the various different miter saws next on my list of power tools that I want. And those are pretty straightforward. Like, yes, you can do damage, but I feel like a chainsaw is next level. Like, do you have the big gloves and a full face mask? I mean, I guess everybody has a full face mask these days, but, you know, other protective gear so that, you know, your legs are still attached to you at the end of the afternoon. Well, I'm going to learn as I go. So it's a new addition. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I didn't even know I needed oil for it. So I'm a real beginner. I have to. So did you buy an electric chainsaw? It is electric and it's on a pole. Because it's lighter, it's right? Lighter. It's a very, it's a very small scale. So I let the serious crew take on the big things, but it's definitely for a small project. So with the other saws and things that you have, do you like do any kind of woodworking or is it just all guard for gardening? No, I, I, I'm a project person. So so what projects have you done? This sounds fun to me. Oh that my gosh. Okay. So it's so embarrassing, but 
I've cut wood to like home decorating things like to cover a mirror with trim. And I do all sorts of projects, actually. I like art projects. I do home repair, home decorating. Do you ever make frames at all? And I'm asking for a reason (laughs) as I get out of my... As as Abby is showing you her artwork. (laughs) Beautiful. I'm an artist in need of frames. I go to Michael's for that. Oh, okay. Yeah, me too. Me too. (laughs) But if you guys got my saws, you would be able to make your own frames and they would be perfect and beautiful and sized whatever you want. So you can some training. That sounds like a great idea. They're actually not that hard to work with. Like I can figure it out and evidence. I still have all my fingers. Um, you know, professionally speaking, that's a good thing. Yeah. I was going to say, it might be hard to do egg retrievals if we don't have 10 fingers. I don't know. I'd hate to try and figure out if I could do it with eight or six or whatever. (laughs) I mean, as long as you're not missing that thumb. Gotta keep those thumbs. (laughs) All right. So I have our question of the day today. Um, This patient writes in, I can naturally grow a mustache that competes with my husband's. (laughs) Hairiness can change during and after pregnancy. Should I hold off on laser hair removal in case all of this fertility treatment pays off and I get pregnant? So what do you girls think about the uh, the state of the hair, pre, post, pregnancy, fertility treatment, all the things? You know, it, it's one of those things that if you, if you are starting off with enough what we call hirsutism, which is hair growth that you don't want to there in abundance of what you would really like to have, you, you could probably have some of your laser hair removal. Now, understanding that laser hair removal, though they tout it as permanent, really isn't. I mean, it's one of those things that you do have to kind of continually do maintenance per se. I mean, you don't have to do it as often as if you do like waxing or plucking or um, threading or, you know, different things like that. But People respond differently hormonally. Um, Everybody thinks of the big thing with hair and pregnancy is after you deliver, essentially your hair follicles all kind of got in sync with each other. And then people tend to shed their hair at one time. And that's why everybody feels like their hair's falling out. But that's not going to affect like hair, like on your face or you're giving your mustache or something like that. So I, I don't necessarily think that would be a, a reason not to. Now, of course, I would definitely talk to your doctor before using any like chemical or um, medication type thing to prevent the hair because a lot of those things are anti-pregnancy friendly. So what do you think, Abby? Well, I think when, if, if you were not trying to get pregnant, the idea is to try and get your testosterone level down lower because testosterone is what kind of grows hair on your face. So a lot of times patients with polycystic ovary syndrome tend to have more testosterone. So the idea would be to get your testosterone levels down lower. But I agree with Susan, if you have thick, dark terminal hairs, the only way they're going to go away permanently is to do laser hair removal. Um, so, you know, if you're trying to get pregnant, we can't really treat you with those hormones to get your testosterone down. So you can get rid of the thick, dark terminal hairs that you may have right now that cause you to have a mustache or a beard or whatever, but just know that after you have the baby, probably you're going to have to do, like Susan said, a little bit more to get rid of maybe some, some that have arisen, you know, between the time you did it before and, and after you have the baby. Yeah, I would agree with all that, you know, for, for people who have, a heritage that naturally disposes itself towards more dark terminal hairs, you it tends to be a more lifelong project. And the laser 
tight treatments tend to be pretty effective at getting big swaths of hair to be gone, but it's never going to catch everything. You're always going to have to go in for touch-ups and maintenance. And so I think that it's probably a worthwhile thing. You know, go ahead and start now with the understanding of it's never going to catch anything and you're always going to have to go back for those touch-ups. But if you can, if you can get rid of a fair amount of the base now, that's going to set you up for more success later and maybe some less frustration in the meantime when you're going to get waxed for the umpteenth time (laughs) while you're pregnant, which is not a particularly enjoyable experience. One thing I do want to mention as being a member of the rarest minority on earth, also known as being a redhead, laser hair removal is not effective for people with red hair. Or blonde hair. Or white hair. <laughs> oh, come on. They've got some of the new, I thought some of the new, and I don't know how to pronounce it, like some of the newer lasers are more effective at the fair hair. Not not in the same way that they do with us who have like dark hair and our team pasty white girl. But <laughs> if you don't have much pigment in your hair, for some reason, laser can't pick it up and zap it for some reason. I don't know. I don't know the technical terms for that, but It's grossly unfair. (laughs) It is unfair. Yes. All right. Well, we are going to get off the hair bandwagon and we're going to (laughs) get onto the grant bandwagon. So Carol, tell us a little bit. So you founded the foundation back in 2013, correct? Yeah. So we started the process in 2012 and actually co-founded it with a, um, a patient of Dr. Vaughn's who had gone through treatment and then had success. And she wanted to do something as a way to pay back her good fortune. And I was uh, in the process of doing it as well. So we teamed up and we started it all in 2012, but we got up and going in 2013. Wonderful. Wonderful. Well, how do these foundations work? How how do y'all do things? How do you pick people? Like what, what, what what's the skinny? And can I ask one quick question just to make sure that I understand? Like, is the primary goal of your foundation giving grants in order to help people get through treatment? Am I understanding that correctly? Yes, we actually our goal our foundation has a twofold mission. One is to create awareness about infertility as a medical treatable condition, and then the second is to provide grants to couples or individuals who are going through treatment. And so how, do, how does that all work? How do you get the grant money to give to the patients for their treatments? That's the tricky part. It's much easier to find people who are in need of a grant than it is necessarily to find donors. So we started out with the foundation by doing fundraisers. And um, every two years we do a fundraiser and we raise money and then we can turn around and award grants. And we've found through the years since we started There's a lot of who are really touched by infertility, whether they've had it themselves or they know somebody who has had it or people like you all who work in the industry um, who are very generous and come forward and try to help people who don't have the insurance benefits to be able to afford their treatments. So we're constantly looking for new ways to raise money. And um, we've had some very generous donors in the past and repeat donors. So we're fortunate in that regard. So when you have, once you have, you know, some, some money that you're then set to give out, how do you determine who is going to get that money? Like if you have, you know, if you have X dollars to give out for a grant, how many people apply for those those dollars and how do you determine who gets it? And what's the application process like? I think that's where foundations differ from one another. And, um, We have really tried to keep things 
very simple and very objective. And so with our foundation, all of us who serve on the board are not medical. And so we have criteria that from the medical standpoint, we just require that all applicants be under the care of a board certified reproductive endocrinologist. Um, that takes care of the medical part for us. If they're being treated and they have a treatment plan, we know that it's a good one. And then we limit our grants to people who have a combined household income of $100,000 or less. We also only do grants for residents in Central Texas. And we define that by Waco to San Antonio. Then we go out towards College Station and a little bit to the West. But we try to limit the number of applicants that we're going to actually get by geography. It doesn't matter to us where their doctor is. We've given grants to Central Texas residents who have been treated in Colorado and places other than Central Texas. That's fine with us. Um, but we do have that criteria that helps kind of narrow the applicant pool. And then we do some other things where we give priority to applicants who are below the age of 40. And um, we prioritize, too, for those applicants who don't already have living children, which is really hard sometimes because we understand secondary infertility when they really, in some ways, I think it's more stressful for patients when they really want to have another child because they don't want their only child to grow up without siblings. And so on those two criteria, age and children, we have flexibility, but that's sort of our way of narrowing down the applicant pool to try to help people. And then once they apply, um, if they meet all of our criteria, we do require paperwork. And that sometimes people step out just because it is a little bit burdensome. We need two years worth of income tax returns and we need their pay stubs. And we need, we look more at the financial picture to make sure that these people really fall in that group of people who have jobs. Sometimes they have homes. They just don't have enough saved or they weren't expecting this, this expense at this particular time in their lives. So all that criteria helps us narrow the pool. And then once they qualify, we do go through an interview process where we meet them individually. And sometimes we learn more that helps us sort of shift things around. And we're, we have a pretty good track record of really trying to help people and finding creative ways to do it. So do you, is the philosophy to give a lot to a few people to cover a big expense like IBF, or do you guys choose to give a little bit to a larger number of people? It's a great question, because I do think grant, uh, different nonprofits do this differently, too. We, on average, give fewer grants, but larger grants to help people because it's really that. And now, actually, I don't know what you all would say the average cost of IVF is, but if you add on genetic testing on top of that, it gets really close to the $20,000 price tag, if not more. And so $1,000 here or there isn't going to help most people that apply for our grants. So we try to give closer to the $10,000 amount. But sometimes we get really lucky that some people only need a couple thousand dollars. So mm. that helps us out when, <laughs> when those applications come through. So sometimes I have patients who are, you know, I've talked to them about their fertility diagnosis and we've talked a little bit about what things cost. And um, I think 
all of us are in non-mandated states, right? Right. Okay. So there are some insurances that cover treatment. There's most insurances do not. We're we're still kind of in that that mix. And I'll have patients who are like, well, before we get started, we're we're gonna apply for some grants. And a lot of times these are patients who are really just beginning their fertility journey, whether they have to go straight to IVF or not, they are not people who have been through things. What what advice would you give to people who have not done any fertility treatments going straight into a grant program like yours where there's qualifications? As far as advice, you know, it's always tricky because if you had all the time in the world, you would just wait five years, save money, and then you'd be fine. But for a lot of applicants, time is of the essence and um, they don't really have time to wait. And so we see a lot of couples who have done some creative things where, you know, they already have some savings maybe, but also they may try to do some crowdfunding, crowdsourcing, or they get family to help them in some ways. Once they start thinking, you know, it's a shock enough for them to find out they have infertility. But then when they start thinking about how can we come up with the money, um, we've been really impressed in how creative people can be and the different ways they find to sort of piece money together to make things happen. You can always put debt on your credit card, which people hate to do. And we understand that That's part of why we feel good that we can step in and help people. But, you know, it's a tricky thing. The sense that I get, Carol, is, and I don't know, because I personally have not kind of looked real closely at this, but my sense is there's not a ton of money out there. And like, you know, in your situation for our listeners, they're not in Central Texas, they don't qualify. So just, can you give our listeners some sort of sense and some sort of sense to us, how readily available are funds for fertility patients? And is it somebody that has to have had fertility for a while before they they are generally qualify or can it be somebody that's new onto the scene of infertility? Definitely could be somebody new under the scene. Again, we we don't, they're, the only thing medically that we require is that they're under the care of a board certified RE. And so once we have that, we check it off. Sometimes people have gone through a lot of IUI cycles before they get to where they really have a lot of expense and um, they need some extra money. But it doesn't matter. We, we almost rather you, you not wait too long and sort of come to us early on, um, we're happy to help you then. And, uh, you know, there's, there is good news because while there aren't a lot of foundations that award grants, there are a lot more employers who are including um, infertility benefits as coverage. And we started as a foundation too, and we got the idea off of the Resolve website that we really wanted to go and and talk to employers, encourage them to extend benefits. Because people think infertility is expensive, but relative to a knee replacement or other medical procedures, it's not that expensive. It's just that it's paid out of pocket because the insurance doesn't cover it. And that's the frustrating thing. The analogy I use all the time too is, you know, if you had to have gallbladder surgery, if you have insurance, that's going to be covered. But if you had to pay out of pocket for it, it'd be every bit as expensive as, you know, doing an egg retrieval. So yeah, I think people kind of, you know, don't think about that in the same way. Well, the insurance industry is really behind because we have the the president of our foundation right now is a woman who is self-employed and um, she didn't need foundation funds. She on her own, figured out a way to get a rider to her insurance being self-employed 
where they were able to creatively get um, insurance coverage with their company. And a lot of people don't know that. And a lot of insurance agents don't know much about that type of scenarios. So it's kind of a learning curve. And again, it's those people who don't give up and really take this financial piece seriously. Sometimes they find ways to, to uncover money that they didn't know they had access to. And I do know one thing too, a lot of patients come to us and they really don't understand their insurance. They don't yeah. understand their finances and, and they're already overwhelmed anyway. So, you know, again, we're glad we can be there and help with the financial piece, but it is a learning curve for everybody to try to um, find where that money is and to help people. Do you have any good resources or any good advice, especially with navigating that insurance piece of for, for people who are self-employed? Like how do they figure out the information they need to put a rider on? Or if, if someone is trying to interpret their benefits, and obviously our, our respective offices will help them out with that, but um, insurances are not particularly known for being helpful and saying, Yeah, here, let me show you how you can get more money from me. Right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we're often, we're often on the phone with um, insurance companies and they are telling us something very different than what they told the patient who we got off the phone with five minutes before. So do you have any good references to, that we can pass along to our patients that says, okay, if you're trying to really dive deep with your insurance and get as much covered as you can, what, where do they go? What do they do? How do they, how do they sort through that? Yeah. Unfortunately, I, it's on my to-do list to learn more about (laughs) insurance, but it sort of makes my eyes glaze over. It's like the last thing on my to-do list because it's so complicated, but I do know like um, most medical practices are so resourceful in helping patients. So that's a great starting point. If they're coming to your office and you've got somebody who helps them, they at least know whether they do have benefits or not. And another thing people forget to see if their spouse has benefits because they may think typically it's a woman who doesn't have it on her insurance, but if their spouse has it, that can apply as well. And Resolve is a great resource for everything. And I do know they have a tab and information on insurance. Also, there are companies that are uh, successful now that are really helping employees go and talk to their employers about extending benefits to infertility. And that's encouraging. We have some people that applicants who actually change jobs or they go to work for like Starbucks or... Yeah, or Lowe's. And- <laughs> right, right. And so as far as like if you're self-employed, I know the president of our board, we did an infertility awareness summit last weekend and one of her talks that is sort of like a bonus. She didn't do the day of because we ran out of time, but she's putting together is some advice on how to do that. So if there's anybody out there who really wants to know, they can contact us and we can get that information as to how she did it. Do you know if Resolve has any um, like pages on their website or anything like that for like grant programs that are available for people who are looking for additional resources? They do. They actually have a listing of grants like ours. We're on their website. And you'd be surprised. There are a lot of nonprofits that are helping people. And um, But the way they do it differs from place to place. And there's a lot that maybe just helps certain medical practices. They're really specific to raising money to help doctors in a certain group. 
there's some like things that distinguish us. There's some they charge an application fee. It's non-refundable or they'll charge for the background check. Things like that. We absorb those costs because we do fewer grants, larger amounts. So we feel, feel like, you know, here people are coming to us asking for money. We can't ask them for more money to process their applications. Is it pretty common? I actually had a patient ask me about this recently. Is it pretty common for there to be an application fee for grants? And and I I never knew what it was for. It sounds like that is something that is accepted and it's for the purpose of background checks and those types of things. Like what are those, if you see a, a grant foundation that charges an application fee, does that send off any red flags in your mind? Or is that just, okay, this is common enough. I'm not super worried about it. Um, it doesn't send off red flags. I think there's legitimate reasons to charge an application fee. I think it discourages some people from applying. And I guess what I would look at is this a nonprofit that is giving small amounts of a lot of money. Um, and so are you going to pay an application fee of typically they're around $50? I've seen some $150, but if you're going to pay that to get $1,000 versus paying that to hopefully get $10,000. But again, they're non-refundable. So, but our foundation, we're very small and we're all volunteer driven. We don't have a big staff. Those are things you can look at when you do your research is how big is their staff? What size grants are they giving? And um, where is that money going? What do you think the turnaround time is when somebody's applying for a grant to knowing whether or not they qualify? What we do is we give grants twice a year. So you have, if, you, if you're really on top of things, you're going to have to wait six months before you're going to hear from us. But once we have our deadline, we take one month to process those grants. And then at the start of the, the next month, we immediately let people know that either, yes, you're qualified and we need to interview you or no, you don't qualify. So um, and then our interview process, we keep it really short. You know, we're, we're totally aware of how much stress infertility patients are enduring. And so we try to keep the timeframes really tight and the communication really open. And we try to be as transparent as we can, just so we don't add stress to people's lives. We really are there to help minimize the stress. That's so great. I think it's such a great service. You know, there, um, when we're looking at grants, there are grants like your foundation where you apply. There are other grants where, you know, sometimes you go participate in a run or a walk and it's more of a drawing type thing. There, there's a lot of, like you mentioned, there's a lot of different um, ways that people do it. And I think, you know, one thing to think of is um, for our listeners, when, whenever you are done with your journey, you know, I, I think that getting involved with one of these grant foundations is a, it, it's a really great way to kind of pay it forward. Um, you know, it, in a lot of medical arenas like cancer and heart disease, most of the funds that those different types of foundations are based on are, are with prior patients. And, and that's how, you know, a lot of these things get perpetuated is with a lot of people giving a little adds up and that, that really, you know, can make a, a beautiful gift to somebody. Absolutely. I can say too, one of the surprises for us has been, we find when people come to us, we do ask for a personal statement to be included with the application. And when we sit down and interview applicants, we realize it's the first time out of the medical setting that they've really told their story to anybody. And I think in some ways, 
we have been able to be sort of the supportive community beyond the medical community in a way that really touches people. And we're so touched by that. And um, it's nice for people to know they're not alone, that there are people who donate to foundations, people who want to help them that are outside of the whole medical community that are cheering them on. That's awesome. That's awesome. So any last words of advice that you would have for people who are looking for grants? Well, there are a lot of options. And um, unfortunately, there's there's not enough money for everybody. But, you know, just know that most people do internet searches and they find the different options. And it's worth your while to apply for a grant because you're definitely not going to get any grant money if you don't apply. And you maybe will get grant money if you do apply. So go for it. Fantastic. Fantastic. Well, Carol, thank you so much for joining us today. And to our audience, thank you so much for listening and be sure to tune in next week for more. Also be sure to subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes. We'd love to hear from you. You can also visit us on fertility.sunsensor.com to schedule an appointment with any of us or to submit specific questions you have about infertility. All questions will be answered on the podcast anonymously for our Ask the Doctor segment. All right, everyone. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you again soon. Bye. Bye. Bye, everybody. Bye.